0: Welcome to KGNU's Morning Magazine. It's Monday, September 25th, 2023. I'm your host, Jackie Sedley. Coming up on today's program, you'll hear about fraudulent, sober living homes targeting tribal communities across the western U.S., Then, on this week's CityCast, we'll hear about the AI buzz in our neck of the woods and why the city continues to hold promise for tech companies. After the BBC News headlines, we'll hear the latest commentary from Jim Hightower. At 8.35, it's a public affair with the Community Foundation. Then at 9, Counterspin will bring us a look at fairness and accuracy in reporting. And at 9.30, Sam Fuqua will be here in the Boulder studio for the Morning Sound Alternative. That's all coming up, but first, the headlines with KGNU's Ivana Oliva.
1: The trial of two Aurora police officers charged in the 2019 death of Elijah McLean resumes this week. On Friday, the jury saw police body cam video of the fatal confrontation between McLean and the officers. The 23-year-old massage therapist was walking home from a convenience store when two officers responding to a 911 call about a sketchy person stopped him. McLean was wearing a runner's mask, which covered his face below his eyes because his anemic condition made him cold, according to relatives. In response to the officer's body footage, a lung physician testified that McLean's breathing became increasingly labored after the police put him into a chokehold. Dr. David Buther said he believed McLean, who threw up several times while being held onto the ground, urgently needed care before medics arrived and administered him a large dose of a sedative into his arm. Defense attorneys have blamed medics for McLean's cardiac arrest and subsequent death. According to the Associated Press, Elijah's mother, Shanine McLean, temporarily left the courtroom sobbing after the videos were shown. Later, McLean told reporters she wanted people to know her son was a real person, saying, quote, knowing everything that Elijah went through gets me here every day, unquote. Colorado homeowners who are rebuilding or repairing homes damaged by a wildfire disaster will be eligible for a tax refund. The state's Department of Revenue's Sales Use Tax Exemption Wildfire Disaster Construction Act makes state sales and use taxes refundable for both building materials and home repairs related to wildfires between the start of 2020 and the end of 2022. The act covers declared wildfire disasters, which includes the 2020 Calwood and left-hand fires, as well as the 2021 Marshall Fire. More information and application forms can be found at the Colorado Department of Revenue's website. An online document denounces CU Boulder for, quote, driving out four female faculty.
2: Juanita Hurtado has more. To graduate students in the School of Education, wrote an online document that outlines harassment, bullying, and public attacks against the four professors of color who had to leave their jobs this summer. They found parallels in treatment after analyzing interviews with the former female faculty. The professors have not been identified. According to the Daily Camera, the School of Education Dean, Carrie Schultz, affirmed the four female professors of color resigned in August. She gave no comment on why they left. The dean also acknowledged CU Boulder's long history of racism while affirming that the university is taking steps towards fostering an anti-racist environment. The online document states that by summer 2023, the four female faculty of color had resigned from their jobs due to intentional removal, shown as microaggressions, everyday violence, gossip, and surveillance. For KJNU, I'm Juanita Tartado. The City of Denver
1: will receive over $2.5 million in federal grants towards addressing youth homelessness. Mayor Mike Johnston and U.S. Representative Diana DeGette of Colorado announced the funding last week. The U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development's Youth Homelessness Demonstration Program, or YHDP, is providing the funding. Grant money will help support various housing programs within selected communities. Denver City Councilman Chris Hines held a special invitation Zoom meeting Friday with officials and business representatives to talk about how to reduce crime. A report by the Denver Gazette says a letter sent by city residents and business members sought a response from council members to address what they described as concerns over safety that are, quote, daily, if not hourly. A mass shooting that occurred on Market Street on Saturday, September 16th, helped spur the conversation, according to the newspaper. That evening, five people were injured when a woman randomly shot them after being refused entry to a bar because of her fake ID. The online meeting included Denver Police Chief Ron Thomas, three members of the Denver City Council, representatives of the offices of Mayor Mike Johnston and DA Beth McCann, as well as neighborhood associations and local businesses. The Hyatt Plains Library District agreed Friday to pay an Erie community librarian a $250,000 settlement for allegedly firing her after she criticized their decision to remove LGBTQ and anti-racist programming. The library district's board of trustees' new policies forced librarian Brookie Parks to cancel programming two years ago. The library deemed titles like the Read Woke Book Club too polarizing. According to Denver 7, Brookie Parks wanted to create programs for teens that would build compassion. In addition to the settlement, the library district will create a review committee that will give librarians a say in programming. Parks' attorney says the settlement may be the first of its kind in the country for a librarian fired in relation to civil rights content. For weather today, in Boulder and Denver, we can expect clear skies with a high of 82 and a low of 50. In Fort Collins, we'll see a high of 81 and a low of 47. For KGNU, I'm Yvonne Olivas.
0: You are listening to The Morning Magazine on KGNU. I'm Jackie Sedley. For months, fraudulent sober living homes have been targeting tribal communities across the western U.S., including the Navajo Nation and White Mountain Apache Tribe, coercing vulnerable people into coming to facilities in Phoenix. The group homes then build Arizona's Medicaid program for treatments that were often never provided, while leaving those in their care in unsafe environments. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, Chris Clements of KSJD says victim advocates have been relying on social media to connect Native American families with loved ones who've ended up living unhoused in Phoenix because of this scheme. Here's the story.
3: It happened on a frozen winter day in December near Shiprock, New Mexico on the Navajo Nation. Michelle Jones, a Navajo citizen and resident of Farmington, says her brother's car broke down and he began hitchhiking, a common method of traveling across the nation's largest tribal reservation. After not too long, a black SUV pulled up next to her brother who asked not to be identified in this story. We'll refer to him as Andrew. The people in the SUV rolled down the window and asked if he wanted a ride.
4: He, uh got into the suv and um i guess while he was in the suv he went to sleep and he woke up woke up in Sholo, arizona and so he just went along and and just had them keep driving i guess and he ended up in phoenix arizona and when he ended up in Phoenix, Arizona, he was there, was put in a home.
3: Behavioral health group homes like the one Jones's brother was taken to have been accused by the FBI, the Navajo Nation Police Department, and the state of Arizona of scamming the state's Medicaid agency as part of this process, which some say amounts to human trafficking. For months after he disappeared, Jones says she only sporadically heard from Andrew, who was originally from Blanding, Utah.
4: I called Shiprock uh, Police Station. And um, they said, OK, we we have found the address of where he is and we'll get back with you. So I kept on calling the police station for about a week or so, and I didn't hear from from them after that. And so I just start searching on my own online of um, where he was and the place that I call the home that I called. They told me that he wasn't there anymore. It was just from home to home.
3: In the next three months, Joan says Andrew didn't reach out. She and her brother's parents became increasingly worried.
4: I came across a, a webpage with uh, Reva Stewart. Her webpage was to help these homeless people on the streets. And she, I had posted on there, you know, I'm looking for my brother, um, if you find him, and She actually reached out to me and said, uh, you know, show me what he looks like.
3: The website Jones mentioned is a Facebook page run by victim's advocate Reva Stewart, a member of the Navajo Nation who works to help Native American people like Andrew return home from the Phoenix area. Stewart's full-time job is at Drumbeat Indian Arts in downtown Phoenix, a Native American goods store. In her spare time, she helps lead the activist group Stolen People, Stolen Benefits in assisting Native relatives who've been kicked out of these homes and who are now living on the streets. Stewart became aware of fake sober living homes after her cousin was taken from New Mexico to a facility in Phoenix.
5: So the first thing I would always ask is what, you know, do you have a picture? What's his full name, date of birth? So we can, you know, check the system. And then that's where we start.
3: But even with that information, Stewart couldn't find any trace of where Andrew had ended up.
5: So we do outreach like every other day. And it was really hot. I think it was like 116 or 118 that day. So we said, we're going to go out to Levine and um, do outreach out there because that's where a majority of these sober living homes are in that area.
3: Stewart and others in her group hand out cold Gatorade and sandwiches to unhoused people they come across, including any Native American people.
5: And then there's one area down there. It's like a little um, culvert. It's like a grassy area right in front of the restaurants. And we were told there's usually Natives there. We've checked a couple of times. Um, The first time we did uh, see people, second time, not so many, Um, but in that area, the the day that we found he was lying there, and I just started running over there because he was lying down, but we didn't know if he was okay.
4: And then she's like, oh, well, your sister's looking for you, and I can't. I want to get some help for you. What do you want to do? And he said, oh, well, I want to come home. I want to go home. So he, Riva, uh, spoke and said, well, I can get you a bus ticket to come home. And and he was so happy after he, he heard that he can come home again. So he was, ex- um, I can hear them in the background and started to cry. And I was crying on the phone because I can hear his voice and everybody in the background was crying and
5: But at the same time, we were so happy because his sister was just like, she was just crying because she was so happy. And so I said, we're going to get him on the bus.
3: They bought Andrew a bus ticket to Gallup, where Jones and her parents were waiting for him.
4: I asked him, what about the homes? And he said, well, they're all shut, they're shutting down those homes. We had no place to go.
3: In May, Governor of Arizona Katie Hobbs announced the state would crack down on these fraudulent facilities in coordination with the Navajo Nation, which launched an operation to return Navajo citizens from Phoenix to their communities. Operation Rainbow Bridge consists of a team of Navajo Nation police officers who have been searching the city for displaced Navajo people who might need a way to get home. However, for many families, informal networks like Stewart's Facebook page page have yielded the quickest results. Since many of these fraudulent, sober living facilities are now being shut down, Stewart says she's noticed an increase in the number of unsheltered Native American people living on the streets of Phoenix who have needed bus fare to return home.
5: We are going to see more people, more of our relatives that are going to be unsheltered, and we still have our GoFundMe. We exhausted that. We've exhausted our um, our supplies for outreach. We literally exhausted that. So we're completely out. All we can do right now is hand out water and utilize 2-1-1 option 7.
3: Stewart says she and her group have arranged transportation for tribal citizens caught up in this system from as far as the Blackfeet Nation in Montana and the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe in southwest Colorado. These days, most of the people she encounters are Navajo Nation or White Mountain Apache tribal members. She says that despite the government's crackdown, she still sees recruiters cruising the streets of Phoenix looking for unhoused native people.
5: It is still happening. I'm actively, I can go outside and talk to some, um, unsheltered relatives. I always tell them, if you're close to Drumby, come inside, get some water. So they come, you know, let me know they're, um, they need water. So I'll go walk outside with them, talk to them, ask if they're doing okay. And as we were standing outside, a car pulls up in the middle of the median between, uh, the store and, um, PIMC in the median and starts gesturing to them. Do you guys want to go with me? And I looked at him and I was like, Are you serious? And I wasn't nice about it. I was like, Are you serious?
3: For Stuart, who's been an advocate on this issue for months, regular run-ins like this are confounding.
5: Why are we still here? Why are we still seeing so many of our people being recruited? So many of our people still dying in these homes. So many of and then you get their obituary and it says, um, Oh, it was an accidental death. You know, you were in a sober living home. How was it accidental that you overdosed on alcohol or fentanyl?
3: In the meantime, Stewart continues to raise questions about predatory sober living homes in the Phoenix area and the various official responses to the crisis. For KSJD, I'm Chris Clements.
0: Up next on Morning Magazine, last week was Startup Week in Denver. On today's CityCast, hosts Bree Davies and Paul Caroli talk with Adil Khan, the CEO of Magic School AI, an AI program that generates prompts for teachers. It's the fastest growing startup in Denver. Khan says that for startups, Denver can be a very attractive place to be. Adil also says that the community really comes out to support Denver Startup Week.
6: It happened on a f- this community of startup founders uh, in Denver is is really tight-knit because it is still relatively small compared to like a Silicon Valley in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's people across industry who really know each other and want to support each other here. Um, and then, two, I met somebody who actually moved from Silicon Valley to take his startup from Silicon Valley to Denver. Uh, And his words to me were like, it was so crowded in Mm. Silicon Valley. Like I couldn't, you know, really make connections. I was one of a hundred people building the same company that these other folks were. And here I feel like there's an ecosystem that can support me um, and some really brilliant tech founders. And quite frankly, like unicorn startups have been founded in Denver companies like guild education here, many of which I had no idea about, like there's not really a great, I don't know. There wasn't for me. It's, It's easy to be completely outside of this ecosystem and have no idea what's happening.
7: This is interesting to me because it sounds a lot like um, I come from the art world and uh, I lived in New York for a little while. And when you have an idea in New York, there's 5 million people doing that idea too. And you're fighting for space and you're fighting for funding. And then I came back home to Denver and I was like, oh, this is where I'm going to start my music festival because it's just easier and there's just less there's less people doing what you're doing, but sometimes it means there's more folks supporting what you're doing, like very organically and honestly. You know, yeah, like I, I could see how that would work similarly for Silicon Valley versus Denver.
8: Uh, it's honestly a little bit uh, corny, some parts of this, like what you're talking about. I remember when we covered it on the podcast, we were talking about this idea. All of the the heads of the of Startup Week were like, "You got to tell the story about the Spur. You got to. This is the the story about Denver, the Spur. The Spur. Do you, you know this story. I'm sure you both know this story. But this is when in early Denver." um when the railroad was being built across the country there were debates over what the route was going to be and it ended up going through cheyenne wyoming but the people of denver the business leaders the politicians at the time of early denver were all like we got to get together and just build a a railroad spur so we can get some of this commerce coming to denver and they did it together collaborated worked together and then it ended up being totally successful and is why denver grew so fast i was gonna say why we're the capital why we're where we are now yeah and it's like it's that same spirit. It's like a genuine tradition that people do. I think it does resonate still today.
7: I think so. We talk a lot about that on this show of the narrative of the West and why people have come mm. here for decades. And it, it changes throughout as technology changes, but there's still the similar reasons.
8: Adil, I want to ask you about politics. Because yeah. I remember when I so the big coup we had on this podcast I've been talking about was uh, we booked an interview with uh, then lame duck governor Hickenlooper. It was I was very nervous going up doing the interview. It was and it was also just an awful interview because it was like <laughs> we only got it cuz the people who run Startup Week were his friends. Hmm. They were he was part of this community. He was a business owner downtown. Sure. That's who runs this event. Totally. He was just part of it. That's, you know, the whole this whole spirit of the Spur thing. Um I'm not sure that is the same way anymore, because there was this survey from the Colorado Chamber of Commerce that said 6four percent of business owners, their top worry is state-level regulations. Seems like they're feeling some sort of like persecution or like they're overburdened by the political atmosphere. What's, what's your sense of the relationship there?
6: You know, I didn't hear a lot about it uh, at Startup Week this week. There wasn't a huge political overtone in anything that I, I got to be a part of this week. Um, but I think that, you know, uh, there have been political interests nationally that have done an extraordinary job of painting pictures of, you know, different types of of leaders. And that's uh, our state's not immune to that of, you know, we there is a perception. I think you can see this on on Silicon Valley, Valley Twitter, that like uh, folks who are probably traditionally have pretty progressive values are, uh, in the startup space and starting to say things that you're like, that's way outside of the values that I think you have. And, uh, because they believe that they're going to have more friendly policies when it comes to, um, when it comes to, to regulation and, uh, and those kinds of things. And yeah, regulation is, is a hot button topic with AI right now. Um, there is is no regulation, right? Right. Um, is there anything you're worried about that people are talking about or do you have any ideas? Well, I, I personally believe AI needs to be regulated. Um, mm-hmm. and, and actually, you know, the leaders in the AI space like Sam Altman and, and others also are, you know, lobbying Congress as we speak. And having there's, I think, a controversial moment in the last two weeks where they had like a closed door meeting with Schumer and others, and uh, which they described as productive. I think it was Elon Musk and Sam Altman and, and uh, Zuckerberg.
8: I think Elon said it was going to go down as one of the most important moments in human history. Yep. In his, his, his classic
6: Elon style, uh, no. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I know. I don't know about all of that. I'm not sure what happened in that meeting, but uh, but I, I will say that I think that AI needs to be regulated. It's incredibly powerful, and these models yeah. are getting extraordinarily uh, more capable by the minute. Um, I think in, in this winter we will see models that are more powerful than the ones that we've like significantly more powerful than the ones that we've seen, and that gives me concern. The biggest concern I have is around the election. Next year. And we've already known that like Russia's meddled in our elections. Uh, So, you know, and they didn't have the power of this generative AI Hmm. to, to kind of enhance their propaganda machine. And now generative AI can, you can make a million agents building propaganda, uh, you know, I, I think that there is real valid reasons if we don't have regulation, we don't have real thoughtfulness that we could be in, in for, for an election like we've never seen before. And, and, you know, the last election can just be might just have been the beginnings of of uh, of what we're, we're going to be seeing over the next decade or so. So it's urgent.
8: Uh, a deal five years ago at the. Denver Startup Week. The we we made an episode about like the emerging industries, the, the new hotness, and that's kind of what we're talking about now. AI seems like it was the the new hotness this week. It, would you say that at Denver Startup Week this week? Definitely, absolutely, A- yeah. clearly, right? Okay, five years ago it was weed and cryptocurrency. <laughs>
6: That's ex- that. This is what the same feeling
8: that you're bringing about. Well, so, AI. so
6: one of those was enduring. You, well, <laughs> wasn't which one? I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say weed. Am weed I?
8: is tanking right now. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The sales peaked in 2021 pandemic, I guess, and now we've gone down ever since. Every year since, back to like pre 2019 2018 levels. It's like full-on tanking.
6: So l- let me give you what I think the big difference is here. So one, I think that you c- – so weed, I, it's hard for me to speak on. I, I don't, I, I'm not super connected to that industry. I thought it was doing really well. Uh, but for cryptocurrency, is a good example, like Web3, whatever you want to call it, uh, you had to believe a lot of things in order for that to be – meaningful, right? You had to believe that the future would be in the metaverse. You'd have to believe that like we're going to be using digital currency in every transaction that was not the US dollar. There were a lot of like, you'd have to make some leaps about like what the future would be like to be compelled by that.
7: You had to believe your bro friend that was the only one (laughs) telling you about crypto who also is a Joe Rogan fan. And I was like, dude, you're the only person in my life talking about this. I don't know how legit it is.
6: <laughs> who also happened to be doing a lot of weed. Yeah. Um, yes.
0: Oh, maybe there was well a connection. grew there. weed in yeah. our
7: house, so yes. <laughs> yes.
6: <laughs> but for this, like, you don't have to be, you don't have to have your, you know, you don't have to peek an imagination. It's in front of us. We can all use it. And what the learning curve is now is just adoption. It's, the technology is extraordinarily powerful. I always say this. There's like these huge numbers of, of people who've used AI. It's like, it's the the fastest growing technology ever, like the OpenAI's ChatGPT, is the fastest growing app of all time. But the vast majority of people who use ChatGPT go to it and they say, like, "What, what are some ideas for dinner tonight?" or "What's the capital of Vermont?" They think of it like search. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That is not what you should do with it. Like the most powerful thing to do with it is ask it to do something extraordinarily challenging and specific. And then you'll get the magic of AI out of it. You still have to, you have to do way more thinking than you would for a Google search. And then you'll see like, oh, it did the thing that, I, I didn't think that anything could do this. We're not wired. We have been searching our whole lives, so we know that we type in a short search phrase. This is a whole new way of interacting with computers that people are still learning even if yeah. they've touched it. So I think that that's going to get clearer to people. People get more education around these things. But when you know how to do that really well, you have this like you know, robot work partner with you at all times. Huh.
8: Interesting.
0: That was Bree Davies and Paul Caroli talking with Adil Khan on CityCast. And that's all for today's Morning Magazine. I've been your host, Jackie Sedley. Thanks to Yvonne Olivas, Benita Lee, Juanita Hurtado, Alexis Kenyon, and the CityCast Denver crew for their contributions to today's program. Stay tuned for a commentary from Jim Hightower, and then a public affair with the Community Foundation, followed by Counterspin. That's all coming up after this news update from the BBC.